We are in Corinthians chapter 8. Thanks, Joey. As I was looking at this text, chapter 8, I said, uh, wow, this would be, this would be quick work today. <laughs> but you know, nothing is ever quick for me because I start diving into Scripture and pulling this out and pulling that out, so bear with me. You know, I've never really understood vegetarians. They, they, they tweak me. I just don't understand that. In fact, it looks like Adam and Eve and all those who went on Noah's ark prior to the flood only ate fruits and vegetables and, and grains. And you know, if people want to live retro and forget about the beef and chicken, that's fine with me. That's just more for me. I'm a meat eater. But there are times I run into these hyper herbivores and they look at me while I'm eating my chicken as if I'm doing something wrong. They're very judgmental. They're, they're as much judgmental as a sour-faced legalist would be. You know, those, who, those fanatics who not only avoid all meat and animal products, but they also want to force their personal opinions on everyday people like us. They believe it's morally wrong for anybody to eat meat, period. So this question about whether we should eat meat may seem irrelevant to us today. But what about those who judge you for drinking champagne at a New Year's Eve party or going to a movie or dancing or playing Xbox? All of these things find their way into the Christian no-nos at one time or, or another. But the hot topic for the Corinthian church, it wasn't about going to movies to play video games or drink a cold brewski. Instead, they fretted over the appropriateness of eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. There were three ways a person might end up partaking of an offering to idols. The first was actually showing up at a temple and eating of the fellowship meal in honor of some pagan god, Zeus or Hercules or anyone like that. The second way that a Christian might eat meat sacrificed to idols was buying the meat in the marketplace, the agora, and preparing it at home. It was the best piece of meat, and the price was lower because it had been sacrificed to idols. The third way was to be invited to a meal, and the meat came from that pagan temple. The pressure is really on you now. You've been invited over, and they bring the meat out, and you know it's been offered to Zeus or someone. What are you going to do? So Paul appeals first to the believer's liberty in Christ. He has spoken to this principle in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 12, when he says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. What that means is I can watch Alabama play Georgia, and if Georgia wins, which they've been doing lately, I have 
the potential to get upset about those things. Paul goes on to say, all things are lawful for me so I can watch it, but I will not be brought under the power of any. That shouldn't be that important to me. I'm not going to let it change my walk and attitude. No way. It's only football. You see, the Corinthians had knowledge, but the problem with knowledge is it can very easily lead to arrogance. And Christian conduct really is not predicated on gnosis, knowledge. And their knowledge would give them, they think, exousia, judgment, or freedom to act as they wish. That's why Paul has to straighten this out. I want you to understand that gnosis is not the primary ground of Christians' behavior anyway. Doesn't matter how much you know. Agape love is. So Paul starts to refute their opening words of their argument. In verse 1, it says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. And what he's saying is that knowledge isn't the primary basis for Christian behavior. Don't put knowledge high up on your chart. Christian conduct must be based on love. And as I was wrestling over this, this chapter, these 11 verses for two weeks now, God is so wise. Of course, God knows humans. And God says, I'm not going to put something on you that you might get puffed up about and you have to strive to, to walk with me and know me. I'm really going to make it easy. All you have to do is love. Christian conduct must be based on love. When we can appropriate that, we can close the book and go home. It, it, it sounds so simple and it is so profound and it's so simple. But God knows we have a problem with that. We carry this flesh. As we will see, love shines brighter in the form of a stumbling block principle because that's what we will look at. It doesn't have to do with offending people. Paul sets forth knowledge and love in bold contrast here. You can't miss it. Words that not only immediately come to mind as natural opposites, yes, they are. And Paul considers it to be the root of the problem. And so really, it's the greater problem. See, the Corinthians, they emphasize, the emphasis is on, is there is this totally wrong what they're emphasizing on. Their aim is their faith. It is not knowledge, but love. John 13, 35 says, Jesus speaking, he says, by this all, believers and unbelievers, will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How we speak, how we relate to other people, that's what matters. Paul insists that knowledge as such is not the primary basis for Christian behavior. Christian conduct must first of all be based on love. He keeps it simple here. He goes on to say, because knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. 
See, in the Corinthians' mind, being spiritual meant to have received gnosis, meaning probably the Spirit had endued them with special knowledge. They were privileged. God had kept something back from some and gave it to them. It's like, I'll never forget, my dad was in the Masons for a little while, and he would always come home, man, I got a secret handshake, I got a secret this, I got a secret that. And then as I grew up, I started looking into Masonry, learned about Albert Pike and and the esoteric, supposedly knowledge and everything, hidden secrets and hidden handshakes and all those things. God doesn't do that. God says knowledge is there and is good, but there's no esoteric, there's no uh, back door getting into the kingdom of heaven by some secret or anything about how much you know. The characteristic of knowing God the Father through Jesus Christ is your love. It's not how much you know. And that, that's what Paul is trying to straighten out here. He says, not only love does not puff up, but it does quite the opposite. Love does. Love will always build up. I can be set straight on something if someone comes to me and tells me in love. And you can always feel the tense of what they're saying if they come in love. That's what love does. It edifies. That's what Jesus is saying is the most important. The aim of Christian ethics isn't about self-sufficiency. No man or woman is an island. We can't do this by ourselves. We can't walk this walk by ourselves, which requires proper knowledge. Rather, its aim is the benefit and the advantage of others. We are here for others not ourselves. Jesus Christ was here for others, not ourselves. He tells us in verse two, and if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. That should humble all of us. Paul says the person who thinks they are in the know by this very facts gives evidence that they do not yet know everything. So it's not because of a lack of content now. We need to understand that. But the lack of real gnosis itself, which as the next verse points out, verse 3, it has to do with agape love. He says, but if anyone loves God, that's the criteria. This one is known by him. He's walking in fellowship with him. Paul's not dealing with loving or knowing God, but he's concerned with their failure to act in love towards some in their midst who does not share their so-called knowledge. Let me say this. True gnosis is not so much the accumulation of data anyway, nor even in the correctness of one's theology, but in the fact that one has learned to live in love towards all. That's God's measuring stick, not how much you know, but are you walking in love? So much pressure would arise off of us if we just walked in love. That's the real thing, where the rubber meets the road. He says in verse four, therefore, concerning the eating 
of things offered to idols, we know, affirming true what they have said, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, that there is no other God but one. Now, the question is, should I or shouldn't I? And he starts with how he analyzes this is through the scriptures. And that's where he should go. That's where we all should go when we need answers. Not only is there only one God, but there is a correlative denial that idols have any reality at all. He tells us in verse five, for even if, and that's, there's three different ifs. Well, it's four different ifs in the Greeks. This if, if it was, but it's not so. For even if there are so-called gods, that's why he says that, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords yet for us, that is us who believe in Christ, there is one God. And catch the monotheistic phrase when he says this. Galatians 3, chapter 20, Galatians chapter 3, verse 20 tells us this. Now, a mediator does not mediate for only one but God is one. First Timothy 2.5 says this, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, the father of whom are all things, and we for him and one Lord Jesus Christ. Don't miss this. It expresses both the divine activity, the characteristic of each indirectly, the functional subordination of the son to the father. That's what he says there through whom are all things and through whom we live. Verse seven, however, Paul says, there is not in everyone that knowledge. So be aware of others. When you receive knowledge, when the Lord reveals things to you, be aware of others, Paul is saying. For some with consciousness of idols until now eat as a thing offered to an idol. Now this is Christian ethics being grounded in proper Christian theology here. I love this. That's the reason God reveals himself to us so that we will walk in what he has revealed to us. It becomes, it is really common in our lives today to uh, base ethically behavior on, well, where did you go to school? Or what education did you have? If you just had a great education, if, you, if they would just legislate properly, if you were raised in the suburbs and to the city, you would have a better chance to live a holy life. All of these excuses man gives to why human beings can't live right. But for Paul, and I hope for us too, who are listening, who would become truly biblical Christians, there is only one ground for such behavior, the unity of God and the fact that our existence both by creation and redemption grounded in the one God whom we serve and with whom we have to do. It is out of this kind of reality that Paul will eventually appeal to the death of Christ as being for others as well as for ourselves in verse 11, chapter 11, and therefore that love, not knowledge, must serve as the primary motive for Christian ethics. He says in verse 7, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge, for some with consciousness of the idol until now 
eat as a thing offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak, they don't understand yet. That's why it's weak. It's defiled. That word defiled is maluno. It means to pollute. Their conscience is polluted. It's stained. It's contaminated. So the first reason Paul gives as to why the Corinthians may not go to the temples is that such activity may lead to the destructions of fellow believers. That's what the Holy Spirit is trying to get every believer this morning to understand. Our walk and the effect of our walk influences everyone around us. It's that important. That should always be our concern for whom Christ died. Paul agrees that food is a matter of indifference to God. He says in verse 8, but food does not commend us to God for neither if we eat, are we better? Nor if we do not eat, are we worse? That's why when we get to the heaven, when we get to heaven, you can eat if you want to. If you don't want to eat, you don't have to eat. Paul agrees food does not make us any closer or farther away from God. He says, nor if we do not eat, we are not the worse. The one who abstains is not at a disadvantage and the one who eats is not at advantage. But beware, verse 9, lest somehow this liberty of yours, here it is, it's your liberty. It's been revealed to you. Paul says, don't let that become a stumbling block to those who are weak. They are weak in this area that you are strong because their knowledge hasn't caught up with their liberty yet. Remember, love trumps knowledge. If we could ever get that and walked in that, we could close the Bible and go home. We have to remember that the, 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 the disciples in the book of Acts, yeah, they had the, a few Old Testament scrolls, but they didn't have the New Testament. They hadn't started writing them yet. So they were listening to their heart and what the Lord was telling them. And then they would go back to the scriptures and make sure they were doing the right thing. That's what the scriptures, we, that's how we should really live our lives. If the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, we just go back and check. Am I make sure I'm doing the right thing? Oh, this is a tough question. What should I do? And find the answers. That's how much the Holy Spirit means to the believer. Love trumps knowledge. Why can't we get that? Those who were mature in knowledge, but undoubtedly not in love. They felt so sure that the meat sacrificed to idols was nothing, and it wasn't. But their brethren did not know it. So they rushed straight into the temple to eat the meat hot off the altar. Oh, look how much I know. And you poor brethren, haven't, you guys haven't arrived yet. They were insensitive, but they were knowledgeable. And who does it help? That's the question. They had forgotten about love. And now in the flesh, because knowledge does what? It puffs up, are behaving carnally, and have overstepped their liberty, falling, failing to temper their decision with love and self-control. That's what they did. And what they did was run roughshod over the guardrail of love. We can do that all the time, trying to impress people of how much we know. 
And once again, God says, that's not the, even the criteria of knowing me. The criteria that lets everyone knows that you and I are tight is your love. And as a result, as they go into the temple and start eating this meat, they careen right into lasciviousness and brought a number of weaker believers with them. That's what they did by their action. And that's a problem. We destroy others' lives when we fail to acknowledge that a brother or sister may be weaker than us. And we have to be conscious of what we do and how we do things. We're all at different levels with our walk with the Lord. So what if someone knows and can quote scripture better than I? So what if someone can articulate the Seder better than I can? That's knowledge. And that doesn't help Christ any or make us look like Christ in any way. Jesus gives us the easiest thing to do, but we don't do it. It's by our love that we will be known to be friends of Jesus Christ, that we've been around him. He makes it easy. It was the great king who said, my disciples would be known for their knowledge of the scriptures. Can I get amen? He didn't say that. <laughs> By their love for one another. Man loves knowledge. Knowledge because knowledge puffs us up. We want to be something. We want to be more than we are. And Jesus is saying, he says that from Genesis to Revelation. If you want to know me, if you want to, to walk with me. Humility is the way down. It's not the way up. Life tells us, be proud, be, be, get all the knowledge you can. And I was talking to Joey. He said he was reading about Plato and Aristotle and all these guys. And he said, we got into the talk and he said, but you know, they never crossed over to knowing the Lord. It doesn't surprise me. They thought they knew everything. And you have to be humble to know the Lord. He gives you wisdom. And that's what Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to understand. It's not so, it's not an esoteric meaning. You don't have to be in some club, a secret club to get to know the Lord and all these things. It's wide open. Repent. Love is the key. Walk in love and everybody will know you're walking with Lord, the Lord then. And the Corinthians are not doing this. He says in verse 10, for if anyone sees you, sees you have knowledge. I saw PV on Facebook downing a beer. <laughs> you didn't see me. Or I saw PV go into a movie that I don't think he should have been in. We have to understand that we live our lives in a bubble that people are looking. More important, that the Lord is looking. And I don't want to make my brother or sister stumble, even though I may have a right to do these things. If it's going to make you stumble, Paul is saying, don't do them. Eating in an idol's temple, 
He says, well, if, will not the conscience of him who is weak, the brother or sister who saw me stumble by my drinking, he says, be emboldened. Now he will think it's okay for him to do that. And listen up, it is okay. It is okay for him to do that. But if his conscience is telling him it's not okay, then he's got a problem. He has more than a problem. He's in sin. Because the Bible says anything that you do that is not of faith is sin. I've made my brother stumble. That's what Paul is saying here. He says, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? Now, we're speaking of a conscience. So we need to understand what a conscience is and what it does. Here's the question. Will it tweak a conscience? When I'm in my everyday living and I'm out doing things, I need to be aware of who's around me, and I should be living a holy life anyway because I don't want my brother to, st to stumble. And the first person's conscience I need to worry about is my own. Romans 14 Read it this afternoon. Romans 14, it makes it very clear that I don't want to be condemned in my heart by what I approve with my mind. I tell, I've told you many of times, the heart will always make a convert of the mind. That's the goal. The Bible doesn't say I can't have some great windfall from some inheritance from a long lost relative. Just, just say I had a rich relative, and they left me $320,000. And the first thing I did, I would go buy me a whale-tail Ferrari. I mean, a whale-tail Porsche. I would do that. Love them. The problem is, there's a problem. I have to check my conscience because I'm thinking if I drive that metallic blue well-tailed Porsche into the parking lot, even if you're saying to me, cool car, PV, something probably is going on in your mind and minds too. It's a conscience. As I drive past your cars and in my mind, it's happening, I get more and more puffed up because that's pride. The Holy Spirit is also letting me have it. You know you shouldn't be in that car. You're an economical pastor. That's what the Holy Spirit is telling me. <laughs> You're an economical pastor. You're right, Lord. I, I went against your, your, your will. It's okay. It's okay for me to buy that car. But now I start to struggle in my conscience. Romans 2, you don't have to turn there right now. We all have one. And we've been grappling with that conscience all our lives. But biblically, to define it, Romans 2, the context is different. Paul talks about how can God judge the world, especially people who don't have the rule, who don't have the law. This doesn't seem fair. Paul takes a little parenthetical moment in verses 14 and 15. He says, wait a minute. Everybody has the rules. It may not be a perfect copy of the rules, but they've got the rules. 
And here's what it says. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, talking about the Decalogue, the Big Ten, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Remember Moses, he goes up on Sinai, he receives the Ten Commandments. Now, even though they don't have the law, the Gentiles, they're still not without excuse, verse 15 says, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. God puts this software program into all of us. This is right and this is wrong. It's there. Now, the conscious, it's not perfect. Speaking of the conscious, it's not perfect. And every copy is going to get tweaked. But there it is. And it's there because God writes the law on the heart. Their conscience is the agent that lets us know what the laws are that we have. Our conscience, it says, also bearing witness. They get called to the stand every day. And there goes my conscience. And it does two things, the conscience. It says in verse 15, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. I got this in my life, this little thing, this little voice in my head, and you have it too. And it gets up on the witness stand every day and says, PV, you know you're driving too fast. What are you spending your time on? The thoughts are either accusing or excusing me. My conscience, it does that. Your conscience does it too. The conscience is that voice that sits there in your mind, your thoughts, and either it accuses or it defends you. When you think about the issues of life, now, the Bible says there's another element involved. Jot down 2 Corinthians 1.12 and 2 Corinthians 4.2. Because what God wants, he wants the conscience to be in tandem with the Holy Spirit working together. That's, that's key. That's what he wants. The Holy Spirit, if we're Christians... And even if we're not, because the second passage refers to people that God is there confirming with their conscience. It's working together. First Corinthians 4 tells us, Paul says, but I'm not therefore acquitted. He's thinking he's doing the right thing. But Paul says, I'm not acquitted even though my conscience is saying I did the right thing. It's the law that matters. God is my judge. So ultimately... Sometimes my conscience may not be exactly right, but God says that little compass in your mind, it is so important that what I'll do is I'll put the spirit in there, the believer, and I'll work with that compass. And the most of the time that will govern and guide you. Sometimes it may not be accurate. Speaking of the conscience, that's when I defer to God and I get in the Bible, and I seek his will, and I listen to the Holy Spirit. But they should be working in tandem. That's the conscience. But the compass on the helm is on the helm of the ship, of your mind. It needs to be protected. And I say it needs to be protected. This is my point. Because when I'm watching TV and watching things that really doesn't matter, 
it's weakening my conscience. Or if I go to a movie and it's, if it's not really helping me with the Lord, it's weakening my conscience. And then when my conscience is telling me this is wrong, you shouldn't be doing this. If I haven't calibrated it with my, with the Holy Spirit, it gets sideways. That's why the Holy Spirit, you have to listen to it. But the conscience is the helm. It's important. We cannot defile the conscience. He, Romans 14, this is what it says. Romans 14, 1, Paul says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak Eat only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let him not and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats for God has received him. He says in verse 22 of chapter 14, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats. That's what Paul is letting them know. Context is this. Meat sacrificed to idols because his eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith we know is sin. If I don't have the confidence that's what faith is to trust in the Lord, that's what's right. The compass of my consciousness is sin. It's given me the green light here though. If you can't do that about something that's permissible, if I'm doing something, even if it's permissible, but my conscience is saying I shouldn't do it, I have a problem. That's sin, even though what I'm doing is innocent. That's what Paul is saying. He says in Romans 14, 14, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, Paul says, I'm fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. And if our conscience is telling us that it's unclean, we shouldn't be doing this, it's best not to do it. I'll give you an example. When I first got saved, I would not listen to any worldly music. For 15, 20 years, I, it would take me back to, I would, if I heard that song, I was doing something I shouldn't have been doing for probably 20 years. Now, every once in a while, I'll listen to a little Dunn Henley. I'll listen to a little uh, Journey, and that's okay. But I'm not defiling my conscience, and my conscience is saying it's Okay. So it's okay for me to do those things. And it takes other people maybe a longer of a time or they may never come around to it, but that's okay. First Corinthians chapter eight, seven, it's not just who's looking at me. It's myself too. How do I think of it? Verse nine, this will help us out. It says this, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. We don't want that. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened? Circle that word emboldened. It means all of a sudden his conscience is strengthened. 
And he, he feels as if he can do what his mind is telling him he shouldn't do. And he's speaking of doubtful things. And he says, emboldened to eat those things offered to idols. And because of your knowledge, shall that weak brother perish whom Christ died, demanding your rights because you know you can. And the Bible doesn't say you can't do it. Verse 12 tells us, but when you sin against your brother in this way, you sin against Christ. It's so bad that the Holy Spirit says it's sin. You're sinning against your brother. It's like Paul, when he was persecuting the Christians on the road to Damascus, and the Lord knocks him off his donkey, uh, off his horse, whatever it was, the animal it was, and he says, whom are you, Lord? And Jesus, he says, I'm Jesus, the one you are persecuting. That's what we do when a weaker brother or sister is around us and we're doing things that offend them, that they're not strong in faith of. We should just don't do it. That's what Paul is saying here. It matters, and it matters to Jesus Christ also. The Holy Spirit is just saying, be careful. Love edifies. That's the easy one. Walk on that side. That shows that you know the Lord and you've been with the Lord. Now, I know half the church might say, I don't have a problem with my freedoms. But the other half of the church might be saying, wow, I kind of struggle with it. That might say, well, if it's good enough for the pastor, it's good enough for me. But God is saying, if we love, that's the key. That shows that you've been around me. It's not how much knowledge you know. We should be concerned with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should not want to, to make them stumble in any way. So if I'm going, and Paul will say this in the latter part. He will say in verse 13, therefore, if, I, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat. That's radical. Paul didn't say, I'll stop smoking. That has to be a tough one. I'll stop drinking. I'll stop going to the movies. I'll stop watching football. No, he goes all the way farther than that because of love. He says, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. That's how all of us should walk. That's how all of us is taking care of our brother and sister. They're right beside us, and we should be walking in love. I'll close with this. Matthew 22, this is the way of agape. Jesus has finished straightening out the, 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 the Sadducees, here comes the Pharisees to him. And he says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked them a question, testing him and saying, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't say one thing about knowing. He said about loving. 
That's our key. We should walk in love. We should, the barometer of our heart should be, am I loving more now than when I first met Christ? Or am I excusing? Or am I fussing more? Or am I complaining more? It's all about love. Once again, that shows us that we know Jesus Christ and he's known of us. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. The worship team can come up. He didn't say anything about knowledge because once again, knowledge puffs up. It's all right to know, but remember, you don't know it all. It's all right to study the word and be in the word, but what that should make us do while we're in the word, that should make us love. That should make us love our enemies. That should make us love those that despitefully use us. It's about love. And as I look around in the church and in churches today, it's not about love. We have to keep reminding ourselves. It's about doing this the best we can, whether it's the worship team, whether it's, it, it's, it's a ministry of anything. How good are we functioning at those things? It's not about that. It's about, am I walking in love? Am I long-suffering? Am I patient? Am I kind? Those fruits of the Spirit. That shows the growth that, that we are as Christians. I, I, I don't care how much you know. I don't care how much you know. It does not impress me at all. What impresses me, do you love me when I need you to love me? It, it, can I go to you for a words of encouragement when I'm down and build me up? I, Don't come telling me how much you know because it does not impress me. You don't know as much as the Lord. And besides, that's not filling up God's tank. And that's surely not filling up your brother's or sister's tank. What fills that up is love. Man, I wish I could think of that proverb now. A, A word in kindness It, fit, it fitly comes together. Josiah, you should help me. You know the Proverbs. What I'm telling you, don't try to know everything. You'll never get there. But what I am telling you, strive for love. If you want to impress anybody, you'll be impressing God because that's the, that's the measurement. Do you love? When someone has offended you, when someone has just stirred you up. Love is patient. Love is kind. I wish I could say it like the NIV says, love, wow, love keeps no record of wrongs. Wow, that makes Jesus smile. Once again, boy, I almost said it. He don't care how much you know because you don't know as much as he does. And and even if you do know, are you walking in that? And then when you're walking, are you walking in love? We have hurting people in this place. We have hurting people in the world. 
Love edifies. When, I, when I've been around you and I'm down and out and I've, talking, I've talked to you, if I can come out of that conversation and I'm refreshed, you've did your job, I've did my job when someone is hurting. If we're in love, keeps all that together. It's about loving. It's about loving. And that's, that's simple. That's why Jesus says, you, you ought to be able to do this. You've been hanging with me now. I, I, I love you, and I showed my love to you, and I want you to show your love to others. I better step down before I say something. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful that you give grace to the humble. I'm thankful that you are a long-suffering king. That doesn't go together, a king and then he's (laughs) long-suffering, but you're not like the rest of the kings. You are long-suffering. You are long-suffering calling those that are that are prodigals. You're long-suffering in calling them back to you. You're long-suffering in calling a sinner to you. You're just a long-suffering God. And I scratched my head and I said, Lord, why are you so long-suffering? Why are you so long-suffering, Lord? And then I'm reminded Hell is not a place you want to spend eternity. Hell is not a place that you want to spend eternity. That's why I'm long-suffering. And that's why, Victor, I want you to walk in love no matter what others do. That's when you're the closest to me. That's when the world will know I'm, you're my son. Not in how much you know, but how much you love. Lord, would you give us the heart to love our enemies? It's easy to love those that love us. Give us hearts to love enemies. Give us hearts to love people that's hard to be around, that we may show your glory. Father, bless us. Bless us to love more. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.